Welcome to Iskan of Silicon Valley. And before we begin, I offer my respectful obeisances to my spiritual master, His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and to all of you, because you are Vaishnavas and therefore the most worshipable in all the three worlds. Hare Krishna. Thank you. It's a work of art. It's beautiful. And today, I suggest that we look a little bit at the Bhagavad Gita and take some direct instruction from the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Krishna. Fortunately, the Bhagavad Gita has been preserved over many, many centuries because the great Acharyas have scrutinized the Gita and are aware of what the verses are, although in other scriptures there has been interpolation. Within the Bhagavad Gita we find the same original verses that were there thousands of years ago. <clears throat> and as far as we're concerned, it's an accurate record of the speaking of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Achyut Nanda Prabhu once asked Prabhupada, he was one of Prabhupada's first disciples, whether the Bhagavad Gita was Shruti or Smiti. Shruti means the original Vedas and Smiti means that which explains the Vedas later on. And Prabhupada said it's both. Because although it's an explanation some of the Upanishads, it's sometimes called the Gita Upanishad, it's giving a, a clear, succinct uh, account of what's in the Upanishads at the same time because it's spoken by Krishna himself. Therefore, it's also Shruti. So we know that the Shruti is the eternal sound vibration. So... In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna begins by answering Arjuna's anxiety. First in first chapter, he allows Arjuna to express why he's in so much anxiety. Have you ever had that experience? Yes. There's a, a lot of ways in which we can come into anxiety in this world. And is there... A, a primary cause for it. That would be nice to know because then we might be able to overcome it. And the primary cause, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna, when he assesses his problem, is being absorbed in something that's not. And that means maya or illusion. And the illusion is thinking that I am this body. And that becomes a great burden because when I consider that this body, which is actually a vehicle, which is my temporary residence for a little while, to be myself, then everything connected with the body and the body itself, which is constantly deteriorating, or at sometimes it appears to be increasing in size and changing and so forth, the overall effect is that it will come and go. So Krishna says that the anxiety is caused by identification with the body and therefore he begins to tell Arjuna in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita that <clears throat> this is the cause of your distress, is misidentifying yourself with the body. And he goes on to describe what is the nature of the Atma or the self and that is that it's an eternal, eternal particle of consciousness that's individual. Every soul is individual eternally. Always has been an individual and always will be an individual. And it can't be destroyed at any time. When, uh, when as a conscious soul, I misidentify myself with the body, the Srimad Bhagavatam says, Bhayam dvitiya binibeshita syad. I'm in a reversed position of life and because of my misidentification in matter and not just misidentification but also absorption in matter 
I uh, succumb to fear. And the fear is of my non-existence, which is a rather strange position, and that's why, why it's called apetasya and viparyayo. It means that I'm in a reversed condition. Although I'm eternal, I think I'm temporary, and I think I'm going to die at any time, and I'm afraid of, of my non-existence. So Krishna then uh, tells Arjuna there are various ways in which one can turn one's attention back to him and become resituated in the self. If one becomes situated in the self, as he says later in the second chapter, when he describes how <clears throat> there are various instructions, for instance, in the original Shruti, that give knowledge of various rituals and sacrifices that one can perform in order to have a better position in the material world. Krishna says, these things are really not meant for, for you. He said, you can disregard them altogether. And he says, instead, be established in the self. Trigunya vishaya veda, nistrigunya vavarjuna, nir dvanvo nityasatvaso, nir yoga shema atmavan. Atmavan, be an atmavan, be like firmly situated in who you are, in yourself. And uh, be free from uh, the dualities of the material world. That's a theme that Krishna mentions throughout the Bhagavad Gita. And then he goes on to mention that if one works for Krishna, that is, if he dedicates his activities, he says this in a, in a brief form in the second chapter of the Gita where he says, Neha bikramanashosti pratyavayo navidyate svalpam apyasyadharmasya trayate mahato bhayat. And that is, Arjuna, if you, if you dedicate any of your activities to me, even a little bit, then you'll be able to overcome the fear of material existence, which is substantial. And even su'alpam, a tiny bit of dedication, this is something he mentions later on in a, a little more extended form in the ninth chapter of the Gita, where he says, yet koroshi adashnashi adjohosi dadasi yet, yet tapasyasikonteyat marpanam. So, he said, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer, give away as a sacrifice, do it for me. And this is a method for realigning oneself with Krishna. And that is that whatever you do in your life, do it for Krishna. And although, as Krishna says in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Every kind of endeavor we make in this world has some sort of fault. And he compares it to fire. Fire is extremely useful, and we can't live without it, can we? Unless you're a raw foodist. Then your food is cooked by the sun anyway. But the fact is, we can't live without fire. But some people will complain, oh, the fire has smoke. I don't like it very much. Well, Krishna says... You have to learn to live with that because <clears throat> every endeavor is covered with some sort of fault just as fire is covered by smoke. However, if you dedicate your work to Krishna or wh whatever skill you have, whatever thing you're eating, whatever thing you're going to offer, give away, whatever rituals you're doing, because human beings do rituals quite naturally. It's a way of submitting oneself to a superior intelligence it will be corrected or the fault within it will be mitigated by offering it to Krishna. This is a great secret of devotional service because we have to be active in this world. Krishna's already established this. Of course, already I'm saying because I've just jumped to the 18th chapter, back in the third chapter where he says, Nahi kashit shanamapi jatu tishyat that we're not dead stones. We're different from matter. Matter, which is what the mind is made of, is completely indifferent to God. Because it's a dead energy. 
whereas we have an eternal relationship with him as a part and parcel. And our nature is that we're always active, always have been and always will be, and therefore it's unreasonable to, to think that we won't desire or we won't have an ambition or we won't want to possess something. In fact, I just read that recently in the seventh canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. In a purport, Prabhupada says that the living condition is to possess something. We have to. And then he gave, uh, when Prabhupada commented on that, he gave a, an analogy, which is that you're standing in line and you see somebody drop a $100 bill. Now you have three choices. One is just to leave it there and don't, don't touch it, don't get involved. Another is to pick it up, put it in your pocket. And the third is to pick it up and give it back to the person who dropped it. So the first one, Prabhupada said, will leave you always thinking about, I should have done something. It's not complete. I should have even given back or I should have at least kept it. I was in, visiting friends when I was young back in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, when we were out playing, we found a wallet full of money. And so we, we returned it. This guy in a big Harley Davidson motorcycle drove up and goes, looks through it and goes, hmm, thanks a lot. You should have kept it. And then he drove off. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always that anxiety if, if you leave it there, I should have kept it, I should have given it back. But actually it's perfect when you pick it up and you give it back. And that's that's the process of offering everything to Krishna. And that means recognizing that there is um, a world. It belongs to somebody. And how rude is it if you come into somebody else's place and you just start helping yourself? I go to Srivast Pandit Prabhu's house. And hey, where'd you get that bowl? It's really nice, thanks. Nirkula, put it in the car. <laughs> It would be shockingly rude. And so the only response that's reasonable to recognizing that this world doesn't belong to me, it belongs to Isha, the Supreme Controller, is to give it back to him. And this is such a natural and simple uh, procedure. And nor does anyone who engage in giving back to Krishna whatever one has um, lacking in any way. Because Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita in many ways, but here's one of them, that when you dedicate yourself to him, body, mind, and, and words, then you'll never lack for anything. How does that sound? Nice? Yes? He says that anyone who becomes fully absorbed in this feeling of giving to Krishna, who he's saying somebody absorbs their mind in me exclusively. means the the consciousness, our conscious awareness, which is what we are. And ananya means without any, uh, any other thought, any other um, consideration. I focus my consciousness on Krishna. So he said, then, for such a person, ananya chintayantomam yejana paripasate, tesham nityabdyuktanam yogakshemam mahamiham. To that person that's so dedicated, I carry personally what he or she lacks and carries what such a person uh, huh? possesses. Welcome back. So that's, that's something that's uh, um, recommended by Krishna and something that anyone can do. The process of offering to Krishna is what he describes as um, 
it's most effective when it's given with love. And that can be done by <clears throat> developing gratitude. Because, and I've thought about this a little bit, if you have gratitude, it, it means that <clears throat> there's somebody behind it. We generally don't have gratitude for an impersonal entity. Because gratitude means that you're appreciating somebody's intention. And when we realize that the intention of Krishna is benevolent in all ways, and we, we can observe it in our environment, which is actually what we've discussed many times, is the quintessential attitude of, of a person who's absorbed in God consciousness, is this attitude that Krishna is all good. And whatever happens to me is uh, he's doing for my benefit. In fact, Brahma says in his prayers to Krishna, tate anukampam susamikshamano bunjane evatmakritam vipakam. A person who's absorbed like this, thinking that whatever's happening to me in this lifetime is Krishna's arrangement for my purification, and he's, he's helping me in all ways. If someone develops that attitude and is able to take in the environment in such a way, in that context, that's the person that's eligible for the um, highest position of God consciousness. And he says such a person inherits the kingdom of God if someone develops that attitude. That's, that's the, uh, the means. So starting off with developing gratitude for the things that I'm being given and then offering them back to Krishna. And such a life is called bhakti. So Krishna says in the Gita <clears throat> that <clears throat> patram pushpam palam toyam. What does that mean? Patram is a leaf. Pushpam palam toyam. See, everyone here is no, no Sanskrit. <laughs> patram pushpam palam toyam. So he's just naming things that you can get in your garden. Anybody has a garden, you know you can get a leaf, a flower, fruit, or water. And if you don't have any of those things, just plant one. Uh, and it'll grow up amazingly, and then you can offer it. Krishna does all the work for you, practically. He already put the algorithm in the seed, and all you have to do is put it in the ground and make sure it's in a nice place. And then it'll grow. So he says, patram pushpam palam toyam. Things that you can get anywhere that he's already providing through the agency of nature, if you just have a little gratitude and you take those things and you offer them to Krishna, thinking, you know, even a semblance of what he says, bhakti, like gratitude or appreciation, it's like, thank you. Thank you for this. And you offer it back. Just that millisecond of appreciation for the gifts that you've been given is a uh, a communion, it creates a communion with Krishna, with God. And that's uh, altogether possible for human beings to do. First of all, the Vedas say a human has the capacity, amazingly, to conceive of a supreme, that there is a supreme source to everything, and to consider that. And also, we have the capacity to develop gratitude towards that original supreme and then offer everything back. So finally, in the Gita, Krishna says, well, not finally, finally for the paragraph that I'm speaking right now before we take reflections is, Krishna says in, in the Gita, sarvasya chaham riddhi vishto, and that is that um, I'm within your heart. Now think how profound that is that Krishna is actually right next to you in your heart. And he says that he's providing the intelligence, uh, knowledge, forgetfulness. And he's also very much aware of our psychic movements or our desires, or I would say intentions. He's very much aware, uh, finely tuned in to the 
intentions that we develop. And according to that, he gives us a, a certain kind of instruction or direction in our life. So another of the practices of bhakti is to refine one's intentions, to notice what one's intentions are and to refine them towards offering, towards, uh, offering what one has towards Krishna. And even if one isn't perfect in one's schedule, scheduled offerings to Krishna, or the way one's arranged one's life, because it does take a little work to do that. And it may take some decades to, to create the momentum and the kind of um, habit patterns in one's life of, of offering things to Krishna naturally. If one can at least develop the intention within, within one's heart to offer to Krishna, through hearing Bhagavad Gita and through association with uh, devotees. One of the ways that it, one develops this good intention is by noticing that devotees are happy. And this is something that is mentioned in the seventh canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. There's a series of verses in the last chapter of the seventh canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam in which, who's speaking there? Is it Narada? Narada is saying that he's mentioning different ways you can come, overcome various um, difficulties in the material world. One of them he mentions is, is the difficulty of possessing wealth. He says you, you can overcome the attachment to possessing wealth by remembering what a trouble it is to maintain it. Because <laughs> you know, you'll, notice, you'll notice sometimes renunciates like brahmacharis, it's just... Like, it's not that they can't develop wealth. They could like anybody else, but they just kind of, it's too much trouble. I'll just take what anybody gives me. And actually, it's a more peaceful existence. You, you might notice that somebody who hasn't uh, set a course for themselves, and this isn't anything, again, this isn't being a Luddite, or um, you can look it up, Luddite, or a, it isn't about being a Luddite and rejecting technology or something like that or, or even possessions in the material world because some of the best devotees mentioned in the Srimad Bhagavatam were, were kings and billionaires and so forth. But it is to notice that even without anything except for one's intentions towards Krishna as the Supreme Personality of Godhead and offering what little one has to him, then one can be satisfied and happy. And that especially comes to bear when, when I feel frustration in the material world. Even though everything should be going right, Prabhupada mentioned it. He said he went to an astrologer. The astrologer looked at his chart and said, you should be as rich as Birla. But then he wasn't. <laughs> you know, when these incongruities happen in one's life, when you see that it's like it should work, but it just doesn't, there's a kind of a sense of frustration that one can develop, and what is the refuge for that? Just notice that if you follow the, in, the kind of mood it, and instructions that Krishna gives in the Bhagavad Gita, then you can actually be peaceful and happy without having anything. That's the wealthiest type of person, is the person who doesn't need to have anything and isn't dependent on the ordinary course of activities. He or she can go along with anything, as long as he or she has service. Narayanak paraksarve nakutas chana bhipyati swarga pavarga narakeshu apitulyarta darshina. This is uh, from uh, the sixth count of Srimad Bhagavatam in the context of Chitraketu being cursed by Parvati, who said, Y'all can go to hell. And he said, I don't care. <laughs> Hell's just as good as heaven for me because I, I'm not. I'm not a, so concerned with my external environment, Motel 6 or the Four Seasons, either one. Um, not that that's a, you know, Motel 6 is hell. But, <laughs> but it doesn't matter the surroundings because the person is, is uh, the intention is fixed in the right way. And Krishna says this intention is so powerful that even the person has anomalies in one's practice of devotional service. He says, Apichet, 
even though apichat sudaracharo means that even if the person externally really has a tendency towards the material world, it, it keeps dipping back into it accidentally because of past bad habit patterns. Apichet sudaracharo bhajate mamananyabhak. If such a person is intention is fixed in the right way, Krishna notices it and he says, uh, you have to consider that such a person is properly situated and therefore either you consider yourself or another, another engaged in that way is to be considered a sadhu or a saintly person. The externals are not considered so much. So a few points are that one is that there are distresses in this world and we shouldn't ignore them. In fact, the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is really alternatively titled the, the Yoga of Distress. And so we can embrace distress and, and we can enter deeply within it and come out on the side of liberation if we embrace it properly, properly channel that energy. And how is that channeled properly? It comes up in, in the second chapter, again, of the Bhagavad Gita when Krishna... Um, says to Arjun, you know, what can I do for you now, since you're in so much distress? And Arjuna volunteers, and he says, I need help. Doesn't he say that? Karpanya dosho bahata subhava, prashami tvam dharma samunachetaha. Like, I don't know what to do anymore. I give up. That's a really helpful attitude. Rather than I got everything figured out, and I'll do it on my own, if one submits oneself to the proper authority, who is Krishna, and says, I give up, I surrender my whims to your instruction because I'm distressed and I don't know what to do. It's okay to admit I don't know what's going to happen next and I don't know what to do and how to act properly. Then one becomes open to the instructions of Krishna. So that was one lesson, right? And another one was that if... If we get in the habit of offering what we have, uh, that is our work, our possessions, our minds, energy, and so forth, to Krishna, even a little bit, Krishna says this will save us from the most dangerous type of fear. And that <clears throat> is um, in all aspects of our life. So he says, just offer it to me. And now we'll take some reflections, any uh, points that you heard or that you can repackage and put back out that you think will be um, useful for yourself or others. Definitely be useful for me to hear what I just said. Uh, we were talking about you know, possessing and then maintaining wealth. Uh, so this is just personally what I thought in the last seven days. We've been, there was a wedding here and I was like uh, maybe thinking too much of clothes, what to wear next <laughs> <laughs> and took out so many things and now I felt very relieved today morning. I don't have to think anymore. <laughs> and then, you know, it's not only taking out, putting them back. In the, so it was, even though, you know, we did it, but I felt it was a big burden on my head. Yeah. So I feel very relieved. <laughs> That's, that was the instruction that I read from Narada in the seventh canto is to consider the, the trouble it takes to maintain certain material things. And if you consider it, then you might... And, and again, anything can be used for Krishna. We're not... What is Lada, a Luddite? Did anybody look it up or not? This is a good word. It'll boost up your SATs. <laughs> not that anybody over there needs it, but go ahead. <laughs> Uh, a Luddite is a person opposed to new technology or ways of working. And where does it come from, pray tell? Um, it comes from English in the early 19th century, perhaps named after Ned Ludd, a participant in Ned the destruction Ludd. of machinery. Yeah, Ned Ludd went around breaking the newer, newest technologies because <laughs> he didn't like to see advanced technology coming up. And those were simple things back then. Thank you. Luddite. Not that we're Luddites, but we do have to recognize 
our interactions with the material world and see what it's what the effects are on us. So that's what Narada advises us to do. See that whatever interactions we're having with material energy uh, could be troublesome, especially he mentions wealth because that's where people are primarily focused. There's an idea that if I get enough wealth, then I'll um, be liberated. If I get enough wealth, I won't have to uh, work anymore, as an example. And... Oftentimes that's a folly because what is enough wealth is elusive. No matter how much one gets, correct me if I'm wrong, but no matter how much one gets, there's, first of all, the lifestyle changes and you get used to a, a certain amount and then uh, you need more. And then there's a kind of anxiety that uh, the more I have, or as it said in a, a famous... Um, folk song, uh, too much is not enough. And no matter how much it is, it could have been more, so that I'm left wanting. And it, it doesn't satiate at a certain point, does it? Is there a, a salary or a, or a 401k amount that you say, like, that's perfectly fine, that's enough, I don't need any more? So that's what he's saying, to observe that. And he also said that there are various innate qualities that may visit us from time to time, like anger. He said anger can be overcome by controlling the senses and various other uh, qualities which may be disturbing. He said, but greed is like a runaway train. And it, once it gets started, it's very difficult to control. So considering the fact that it's difficult to maintain certain material things and that it's not absolutely necessary to, take, to get more and more, it can be uh, helpful. Yes, Prabhu. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for the nice class. So, continuing on this uh, uh, humble question, uh, you know, um, drawing line as far as material possession is concerned is important, and uh, sometimes. Uh, I can speak for myself. I see that devotees are much more senior. Uh, you know, I know the IT salaries in the Silicon Valley, but husband and wife both are working. And, uh, you know, whenever we have to make a decision, I'm just talking about, you know, I look at them and then say, okay, where to draw the line? So how, how do we look at it? Because action speaks louder than words. We all can spend so much more time in devotional service in one way, but at the same time, you know, mind at least tries to trick me that, oh, but this is required, you have to be practical, look, others are also doing it. So how do we, first of all, two parts, how do we look at it and what is the practicality? Yeah, that's a good question. It's really, it is a practical question. I know, I know a, a devotee who asks this question regularly. He says, okay, I'm working and I'm making a lot of money, but I'm giving a lot of it to spread Christian consciousness. So he says, should I keep working and keep giving money? Or should I, you know, should I not uh, work and have a, more, uh, have a more simple life and just do more sadhana? And I mean, the answer is both are okay. If somebody's working hard and their main intention is to, to help give uh, facility to spread the Krishna consciousness movement. In the early days of Krishna consciousness, the very early days, when Prabhupada first established a center in San Francisco, several devotees came and their idea was, okay, we'll just be renounced now. And Prabhupada said, go get a job. <laughs> we, need, we need money to maintain this place. So they were surprised. Like, how does that work? So they went out and they got like Jayananda was driving a cab, so was Kesha Bharti. They were friends, and they both used to drive cabs, and they would, uh, of course, distribute books while they were driving cabs. And then they give the uh, most of the income to the to the to support the temple and so forth. So that's definitely an option, Prabhupada. Oftentimes, with business people who are well established, he just encouraged them to help support. Krishna consciousness, and, and Krishna does also. In the 12th chapter of the Gita, he says, constantly think of me. If you can't constantly think of me, practice the tenets of bhakti so that you can come to that point of thinking me. If you can't do that, 
then work for me. It means that you should directly give something. And at different times of our life, there'll, there'll be obvious ways in which uh, one or the other is appropriate. Of course, it won't be completely obvious. It always takes a little adjustment, one way or another. But that's when we talk about climbing a ladder, and you put your foot on the rung, and when it feels solid enough, then you move to the next level. You can move up steadily in devotional service in that way, and you can make your decisions in that way too. You can you can make well-reasoned decisions about: uh, Do I have enough wealth? I mean, we know people that have retired because they planned ahead and they made enough income so that they could support their families on the interest and so forth. And then, I mean, we know plenty of people, there's been books and move, books written and movements started on uh, this principle. Just don't, don't just work so hard your whole life. Find a way to live below your means, develop enough so that you can have uh, an ongoing income stream and then uh, use the time, and these are, I'm not talking about the realm of devotional service necessarily, there are plenty of people who have written books about this. Joe Dominguez, well, he was one of them. Do you remember him? Part of the frugality movement, it was like don't waste your whole life just working for somebody, but get to a point where you can retire. So all these things are practical matters, and at different times of one's life, one or the other may be more appropriate. You have to judge according to it. Okay. Uh, yes, Prabhu. Guru Maharaj, I have a question. Yes. Uh, we know that Krishna is only present uh, as uh, it's mentioned multiple places in Bhagavad Gita. When you mentioned about uh, uh, 15 chapter, the 15 uh, verse about uh, Sarvasya Chaham, that he's seated in our heart. What, what what is the significance of that uh, statement? Because that is that is the what does it actually mean to us, and how we can internalize that so we could feel that thing different from that statement when Krishna is omnipresent, He's everywhere, nothing exists without Him. Well, one way Prabhupada mentions that you can notice it is to be aware of your intelligence and see where it's coming from. Oftentimes, I I take my intelligence for granted. Um, not me, because I don't have much to take for granted, but uh, you might notice that there's, in, there, there's intelligence coming to you as if from a parent. This is how Prabhupada describes it. You may notice that you're working on a problem and then the solution comes to you, whether it's a simple problem, how to untie a knot, or um, how to uh, make a... a, a um, cure for polio or something like that. This is one that the, the person who, who developed a cure for polio said that I had worked on the problem incessantly and then was just waiting for my wife outside the gro grocery store and then the formula came into my mind complete. That's a dramatic case, but even simple cases of seeing one's intelligence is... Um, is miraculous also. And you might notice it's coming from a higher source. So again, Prabhupada said, notice that it's coming from a parent-like um, entity. So Krishna's saying, that's me. If you want to know who gave you the answer on the test or wherever it was, <laughs> that's coming from Krishna. It came into your mind because of Krishna. So that's one of the introspections he mentions in the, in the second can, uh, canto of the Bhagavatam, uh, 2.2.25 or 2.2.35? Yeah. That's it. If you scroll down to the second to last paragraph, I'll show you an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, a little bit higher. 
There you go. Therefore, we can say that our material senses of perception and action are moving because we are identifying the self with the material body, and that the superior principle of super-self is guiding and supplying us according to our desire. By taking advantage of the guidance of super-self in the form of intelligence, we can either continue to study and to put into practice our conclusion that I am not this body, or we can choose to remain in the false material identification, fancying ourselves to be the possessors and doers. Our freedom consists in orienting our desire either towards the ignorant, material misconception, or the true spiritual conception. We can easily attain to the true spiritual conception by recognizing the super-self, Paramatma, to be our friend and guide, and by dovetailing our intelligence with the superior intelligence of Paramatma. The super-self and the individual self are both spirit, and therefore the super-self and the individual self are both qualitatively one and distinct from matter. But the super-self and the individual self cannot be on an equal level because the super-self gives direction or supplies intelligence, and the individual self follows the direction, and thus actions are performed properly. The individual is completely dependent on the direction of the super-self because in every step, the individual self follows the direction of the super-self in the matter of seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling, willing, etc. So Prabhupada even extends it there. All the, all the ways in which we're able to function in the world are coming from a superior source. If We often don't notice them until they're uh, taken back. If, if, if some, of, some of your senses are uh, restricted, you know, due to some disease or an ailment or something like that, then you might notice, hey, where'd it go? It's usually just expect that it's right there. Then you can notice that it's a gift. So that's one of the ways to meditate on the super self, is to be very aware of the intelligence that you're getting that's being provided to you from that super self. Yes, Srivas Prabhu. Is conscience also part of the super self? That conscience? You mean do, like don't feeling? Do I mean, you get that inner voice. Should we also include that as a part of the super self? Or yes, and in fact, as I was noting down earlier, that um, conflict arises in our minds when we ignore the true values. When we ignore our true values and try for so-called happiness, there's a sense that, that um, hey, wait a minute, that's not going to work. <laughs> Didn't work the last 10 million times, why are you trying again? That this is also a reminder from Super Soul. Prabhupada mentions this, and so does Krishna in various places, that he gives good instruction to the living entity, but in the end, he leaves it up to him. At the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Yatechasi tata kuru, now do what you like to do. Means he gives the instruction, but now you can uh, do as you wish because he doesn't coerce or, or force uh, the, anybody to, to act in a certain way. He informs them. Of course, the material world is booby-trapped to teach us a lesson. Do you know what a booby-trap is? Yeah, three people know, so it's, I, I guess it's, you could look it up. If you touch the wrong thing, like a noose comes out, grabs you, ties it, trips a wire, you're walking in the wrong place. So the material world's like that also. It's wired in such a way, if you touch the wrong thing, it blows up in your face. And that's actually meant to be a lesson to to don't touch that. Like if you touch a hot go to touch a hot stove and your parent goes whack, you know, then you remember, oh, I shouldn't touch that in the future. Or if you touch it and you get burned, you'll remember in the future also. What is a booby trap, by the way? Is that on the SAT? 
A booby trap is a device or setup that is intended to kill, harm, or surprise a person or animal. It is triggered by the presence or actions of the victim and sometimes has some form of bait designed to lure the victim towards it. Hey, that's pretty appropriate. Can you read it one more time? A device or setup that is intended to kill, harm, or surprise a person or animal. <clears throat> it is triggered by the presence or actions of the victim and sometimes it is triggered by the <clears throat> presence or presence actions or actions of the victim of the victim so karma works like that too the whole universe is like that it's all booby traps like you know whatever actions you perform or and sometimes has some form of bait designed to lure the victim to yeah play. there's a bait in the material world, it's like, come on, come on, try for it. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> and you get caught or it blows up or whatever it happens or, you know, it seems okay at the time. It's like, oh my God, that was the thing I grabbed before. So these things are, you know, the whole world's booby trapped. And there's a way in which uh, we start to, we, we do have an intuition about these things. And when we're more aligned with our value that, we should be looking to serve rather than to usurp. Then uh, we start to feel harmony, actually. And the, the ultimate verse about that is at the end of the fifth chapter? Yeah. Bokdaram yagitapasam. So, sarvaloka maheshvaram, suridam sarvabhutanam, gyathamam shantam richiti. So, Krishna says, here's the way to get peace. Align yourself in this way with your true values. And the first is, that um, realize that your self-interest is in feeding Krishna. Feed Krishna first, because you're a leaf on the tree. And if you water the root of the tree, then you get nourished. Don't try to do it separately. And then, Sarvaloka Maheshwaram, consider that everything that you have is on loan to you. As Prabhupada said, we were listening on the way home from our retreat, he said, you come into the world naked, and you leave the world naked. And everyone thinks, while I'm here, all these things belong to me. But actually, uh, consider, you know, when you came into the world, you didn't have anything, just a little naked body. And when you leave the world, they, you know, they, everything gets completely left behind. And so while I'm here, what am I claiming is mine? So these are the three ways in which one can, oh, and then finally, Asuridam Sarvabhutanam, this attitude of understanding how Krishna is actually my friend. The, there's a benevolence that surrounds me in this world. Even in the missteps that I take where I get some reaction, this is the, the benevolence is, is coming from a, an intelligence which is refining us so that we can come to our best selves, to, to be our best selves. And when we're in that position, then gyatvamam shantimrichiti. From that, you'll attain peace. So conscience, our conscience is there, and that's Krishna also, reminding us that, remember your values? Wouldn't you rather do this? And then, oh, well, go ahead, try the other thing. See what happens, boom! And then that's meant to teach us. Maharaj, thank you so much for the wonderful class. Um, I was thinking about realignment that you mentioned. And so in, in real life, I was thinking that, you know, you can have gross disalignment. For example, if, you're, if your teeth are not aligned properly, then you will have infections there. Or if you're, you know, the chiropractors always are realigning our vertebral column like that. But then there is alignment at a subtle level. For example, if you're not aligned with the values of your company or the values of your boss, then you are in trouble like that. So I was just thinking that the biggest uh, misalignment is that we are not aligned with Krishna, where you said that, you know, yat karoshi, yat ashnasi is the real yeah. realignment. So I was just thinking that's... Yeah, it's a nice point. A progression, you can understand how misalignment in any situation leads to disharmony in your life. And ultimately, existentially, we're meant to be aligned with Krishna. And the more we are aligned with him, then the more we'll experience naturally our joyful nature. It's joyful to be a servant and to not claim ownership over anything. It's really a, a, a trouble to hold on to so many things and try to manage and control them.
So, so uh, about your comment about Motel 6. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying it can become a heaven if you place a Bhagavad Gita there. And, and Motel 6 becomes a heaven if you put a Bhagavad Gita there. <laughs> little advertisement for you, Mayapur. <laughs> he doesn't mind. Motel Gita. Motel 6. Has more Bhagavad Gita's than... Per capita um, than any other. So it's, I've made an operad <laughs> against Motel 6. Okay, I'm going to read you one verse that I intended to read earlier on from the Bhagavad Gita. And this is related to this point that it's worth it trying to control the senses in devotional service because there's a reward. There's a reward. And it's important to remember because we're motivated by rewards and punishments in our life. And when we understand that the greatest reward comes from controlling our senses in devotional service for the purpose of serving Krishna, and that reward is absorption, absorption in Krishna. And that's where the ultimate alignment is. Okay, so this verse is from the sixth chapter of the Gita, seventh verse. And Krishna says, Jitatmana prashantasya Paramatma Samahita Shitoshna Sukatukeshu Tatamana Pamanayo. For one who has conquered the mind, the super soul is already reached, for he has attained tranquility. To such a man, happiness and distress, heat and cold, honor and dishonor are all the same. Actually, Prabhupada writes, every living entity is intended to abide by the dictation of the Supreme Personality of Godhead who is seated in everyone's heart as Paramatma. When the mind is misled by the external illusory energy, one becomes entangled in material activities. Therefore, as soon as one's mind is controlled through one of the yoga systems, one should be considered to have already reached the destination. One has to abide by superior dictation. When one's mind is fixed on the superior nature, he has no alternative but to follow the dictation of the Supreme. The mind must admit some superior dictation and follow it. The effect of controlling the mind is that one automatically follows the dictation of the Paramatma or Supersoul. Because this transcendental position is at once achieved by one who is in Krishna consciousness, the devotee of the Lord is unaffected by the dualities of material existence, namely distress and happiness, cold and heat, etc. This state is practical samadhi or absorption in the supreme so again the reward of controlling the senses and engaging them in krishna consciousness is absorption and from the position of absorption there's further advancement in spiritual life and also a sense of happiness when one's absorbed even when we're able to control our mind to do our work without being distracted by all the pop-ups that come on the screen that you can't get rid of ever. I need a little help on that. Um, on the pop-ups, I don't know where they're coming from. Do you? I don't even know how they got there. I mean, there's one from malware that said, I don't want malware anymore, please, thank you. And there another other kinds of things, I don't even know how they got on there. And I don't know how a lot of things got in my mind either. They just come up all the time. but. If one's able to, for instance, do one's work without distraction, don't you feel a sense of relief, even for a moment? If you're doing your work not procrastinating and you're actually doing what you're supposed to do and you have your full mind absorbed in it, even from that, there's a sense of relief and happiness. Yes? Thank you. And then if you think about how, how much sense of relief and happiness there are when your mind is fixed on Krishna. For instance, fixed on chanting Hare Krishna without it jumping all over the place to other subject matters or other stimuli and being distracted. If you have that, then you have this complete absorption in Krishna and you'll feel happy. That takes practice. But the reward is there from trying. So every little um, victory that one gets in controlling the mind through determination and effort to practice devotional service will have its reward. And the ultimate reward is 
feeling this complete happiness in, in connection with Krishna. Okay, just a couple minutes if you have any questions. Okay, a question from Raman and Sakat, which is always a challenge, so. Regarding what we have read, a devotee is unaffected, or, or a yogi is unaffected by the dualities of the material world, and one of them is mentioned is heat and cold. Is it literally referring to heat and cold, or, uh, or it is more of... Yes, definitely related heat and cold, and the evidence is that Prabhupada talks about it all the time, as he, it's, I think it's the topmost duality that he mentions. Uh, and even Krishna, when he says, Matra sparsha stukonteya shitoshna sukadukata, right? Heat and cold. So then, the way Prabhupada mentions it is for the devotee, the devotee's concerned with doing his or her service for Krishna, because that person has achieved absorption, and that's the nectar of life. And he or she is not dissuaded by the heat or cold. So he gives an example in the cold winter time, the devotee doesn't hesitate to take a bath because that's a duty to take bath early in the morning and before you you know go on the altar and do all kinds of other things but if some in the summer of course we're talking about either like in a place they don't have hot water which used to be a lot of iskon temples because so conveniently the temple president took out especially in the brahmachari ashram we didn't have hot water there's just no handle on there navina did you have that in europe did they give you hot water or no? Except Russia. Well, I know Cleveland, Ohio didn't have it. And it gets really cold there. We go in and just have cold water. But the devotees in Vrindavan, you'll notice in the early morning, will be there in November. It's starting to get really cold in Vrindavan. You'll see sadhus all over the place coming out of their little hut. And they'll take a, you know, a bath. Do-do-do-do. Not exactly do do do. It's more like rah, Hare Krishna. It's a little bracing, but they still do their duty. And in the summertime, when it's hot, it's not so pleasant to go in the kitchen. But still, the devotee doesn't mind. It's not affected by duality because, out of love for Krishna, sense of I'm serving Krishna, I'm absorbed. This is my life. Like Bhubaneswar Prabhu, he lives in Vrindavan. He's been there almost thirty years now. He's a brahmachari, and he always cooks the Raj Bhog. He's in his 70s, and he just goes in and does his duty, whether it's cold or hot, or it doesn't matter because his duty is there. So, yeah, heat and cold, definitely. Oh, yes, Kanka. Thank you, Maharaj. Um, also, heat and cold can remind us of Krishna because when we start freaking out that it's cold or freaking out that it's too hot, we can think, okay, I need to learn how to be tolerant and, and this is all coming from Krishna to teach me how to be more tolerant and of the heat and cold. <laughs> but um, what I wanted to tell you is that I was in L.A. when Prabhupada was explaining to us how the astrologer said that he um, should have been as rich as Birla. He said, but fortunately, Krishna intervened and, and took away all his wealth. And he, became, he knew that from then on that he would have to follow Bhaktisiddhanta's order to come to America and teach yeah. Krishna consciousness. And that's the attitude we talked about before, tate onukampam susamikshamano, that whatever happens, I take it as Krishna's arrangement and, and see what, what does he have planned for me. And it, he, he also indicated it may not be easy at first. Yes, Prabhu. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for the inspiring lecture. I like the, and I was inspired by the point that you mentioned, uh, is bhakti means uh, purifying the intentions, and the devotee association can help us purifying our intention. So my question is, what should be our attitude towards the devotee association, so that we can 
take maximum advantage of the devotee association and we can purify our intention. Well, it's helpful to hear Krishna's instructions about sadhus. Sadhus means someone who's purely practicing Krishna consciousness. And throughout the, the Shastra, especially Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, and elsewhere, Krishna himself mentions how important devotees are and how important devotee association is. So we can take from that that it's one of the ways that we, or the, I should say, according to the Chaitanya Charitamrita, it's, as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says, it's the root cause of devotional service, and it's the way that we maintain devotional service and the way we attain perfection. And other verses, sadhu sangha, sadhu sangha, sarva shastrakoi, lava matra, sadhu sangha, sarva siddhi hoi, these are powerful statements. This last statement says just by a, a little bit of association with the sadhu. In fact, it, the verse says even by a fraction of a second, one can attain perfection. So we take those, those points seriously and we follow Rupa Goswami's instruction in the Upadeshamrita, Krishneti yasagiritam manasadriyeta dikshasti che pranitibisha bhajantamisham shushushaya bhajanam vigdamananyamanya nindari shunya hridamapsita sangalabhya. He mentions there are three levels of, of devotees. One of them just says Hare Krishna. Anybody who says that, we say in our mind, my obeisances to you. Those who are um, chanting steadily, because They've dedicated their life to it, and they've taken initiation. Those people, we go out of our way to offer obeisances. And then amongst that group, the ones who have become very, very advanced, and you can notice that their hearts are free from the propensity for uh, finding fault in others unnecessarily. Those people, and we can try to get as much as association and do service for as much as possible. So these are the ways, he says, that one advances in devotional service. And if we can simply consider that and make that our preoccupation in life, is being close, as close as possible to sadhus. How many of you registered for the sadhu sangha? See? You know what you're doing. It's a, you see the name sadhu sangha and you go, I'm going, because there's sadhus there. So that's, that's the idea. If you go to where the sadhus are and you just try to be there, Kapila Dave says, in that in that that famous verse, uh, oh yeah, there's a bunch of them coming out. Even ones I wasn't thinking about. Satam prasanga mamavirya sambivo and tatikshava kurunika suridasaravadehinam ajatra shatravasanta saravas sarabushana. There are many many verses about sadhus, and so we we should cultivate those and make that the main practice in our life. After we're, we're practicing Vaishnavism, right? That means to worship Vaishnavs. You know, find out where the Vaishnavs are and do service because it's actually more important to worship Vaishnavs than to worship Krishna. Radhananam sarvesham Vishnu aradhanam param tasmat paratanam devi tadiyanam samarchara. This is uh, Lord Shiva to, to his wife Devi says she wanted to know what's the highest kind of worship of God. He said, well, of all, all the different ways uh, or objects of worship, Vishnu is the highest, but higher than that is worshiping the devotee of Vishnu. And then the ba Chaitanya Bhagavad is said by the author Vrindavanas Thakur, said, if you worship Lord Narayan, then you may or you may not go back to Godhead. But if you worship the devotee of Lord Narayan, you're definitely going back to Godhead. <laughs> and as Gopi Pranadana Prabhu used to say, it's not what you know that matters in life, it's who you know. Uh, <laughs> and if you know a devotee, and even if you're a nobody, but you place yourself under the, the protection of a, of a Vaishnava who has some significance because that person has placed him or herself under a Vaishnava, then you start gaining spiritual significance because of your connection. That's the main point about being a devotee is, is your connection to a Vaishnav. And, and that's why my godbrother Guru Kripa and I we used to travel around many temples in, in India and visit here, there, everywhere. And we go in the temple 
bow down to the deities, and we say, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prashtaya Bhutale Srimate Bhaktivedanta Swaminiti Namane Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunivadi Pashyatate Shatarni. And one time he looked at me and goes, so we're bowing down to all these deities and we're saying Prabhupada's Pranam Mantra, why are we doing that? And I said, you tell me, you're my senior godbrother. And he said, because we're telling the deity, this is who let me in here. This is who told me to come. And if you stay in that mood that I'm under this Vaishnav, then uh, Krishna says any, in the Adi Purana, someone who says he's my devotee isn't my devotee. But someone who says he's the devotee of my devotee, that's my devotee. And then Prabhupada really gets into it. He said, if you're the servant, 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 a million times removed, <laughs> he said, then you're really liberated. <laughs> so this is all there in, in the Bhagavatam, in the Chaitanya Charita, and it's a culture. So in any community, in any family, in anyone's life, one can, uh, can uh, develop this culture of worshiping Vaishnavas. In fact, Kalidas, he, he had a goal for his New Year's resolution. He wrote down, I'm going to take the remnants of every Vaishnav in Bengal. And he went out of his way everywhere, even by tricks, he would take the remnants of the food. And Chaitanya Mahar was so pleased with him that he allowed him to take the water that washed his feet in front of the Jagannath temple, nobody else. So there's, there's a lot of um, instruction and culture about that.